Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 346 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to Gabriel Rosa of Roby Studios about their dexterity-based action-adventure game, Blue Fire. Sorry, dexterity-based. What on earth do I mean by that? I mean, it's an action-adventure game. Well, it isn't. What isn't dexterity-based in that? Well, Blue Fire really emphasises that aspect of the game. It relies on the player really understanding the environment and exploiting it as much as possible. The fluidity of movement is quite incredible and it moves at such a pace and it's quite impressive to see it run on the Switch is the port I played it on, or the platform I should say. But um, no, it's a really excellent game. Fantastic guest as well. They're all fantastic guests. But this... This episode, you really want to listen to this one because you really, really delve deep into the intricacies of designing a really well-crafted, and this again is something I do often say in these intros, but this is a well-crafted game. And to talk about the interaction and the relationship between the character and the environment they're in, the actual physical environment, and how they interact with it, and what limitations they've got, and working with those to exploit everything. It's just really fan- fascinating conversation about uh, how this extraordinary game was made. So yes, let's listen to me from the past talk about Blue Fire with Gabrielle. So Chris, if you'd be so kind. Gabriel, who are you and what do you do? Okay, so um, well, I'm a lead, uh, I guess, a CEO at Roby Studios. Uh, but I kind of consider myself more like a team lead uh, at the studio. 
and I've been in the game industry for over seven years. Um, I originally started, I guess, I, I studied industrial design, and when I was in the late years of my uh, university career, I I ended up having a, a lot of free time uh, one specific year, and I, I kind of decided to get into game development that year. Um, when I was, uh, I guess, uh, a lot younger, I think when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I was a really big fan of video games, and I remember in my spare time, I would go on the computer, and I, uh, I, I didn't really have any games on the PC, and I wanted to play games like the ones I had on the console, and I had a limited time per day to play uh, console games. So I, I don't really know how, but I ended up trying to create my own games on PC, similar to the ones I used to play on the console. And I remember using Game Maker, Game Maker at the moment, and I really, really got into it when I was uh, pretty young. But eventually, at some point, in when I was, I guess, a teenager, I kind of dropped it, and I kind of abandoned it. But I, like I was saying, I picked it up when I was uh, finishing uh, university, and from there, it just, uh, I, I guess, I really, really liked it, and I kept doing it. Initially, I remember I wanted to. Uh, like when when I started back in university, I had this crazy idea that I would uh, make a, like a concept trailer in about two or three months with a friend, and we would pull off a huge Kickstarter campaign and get funding for a super huge game. And at that time, we barely knew uh, really the ins and outs of making games. Like we had no idea what we were doing. So uh, I guess it was a good thing. But we never really did the Kickstarter campaign. We just kind of started going to events and getting in touch with people, getting to know people, started learning how the industry really works. And over time, we just kind of decided to abandon that first project, which we ended up spending like a year and a half on. But the good thing is that we dedicated so much time to that project that uh, when we abandoned it, we had already learned a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, technical stuff. And we also had gotten to know a lot of people. We we learned about the industry, a, a lot of things. Um, I guess a lot of that came from going to events and getting to know other developers. But uh, but we eventually also realized that uh, even though we were really really good friends, we kind of had different uh, views on on creating a, a studio and a company. So we also decided to kind of uh, go our own different paths. And I started doing outsourcing at that time because I really didn't have any uh, partner who I wanted to uh, who, to start uh, another studio with. And I just kind of do, started doing mainly environment art outsourcing. So I did that for quite a while, but eventually I always wanted to do uh, games. So I teamed up with my brother uh, a bit later on and we set off to create a game and we ended up creating Roby, which uh, did mainly outsourcing for the first uh, for a while. But since we wanted to make games, we just kind of, uh, I guess, made a really big leap and went all in and started working on our first title. And I remember when we we got to a point where we realized that if we wanted to take things uh, seriously, we kind of had to. Uh, make some big bets so we kind of we rented an office and we moved from my uh bedroom 
because at that time we were working, both of us on, we were living at our parents' house and we were working, I guess my brother didn't live in my parents' house, but he came to my house, he came back to my parents' house so we could work together. And we were working in my bedroom. I remember I had my uh, my bed and two workstations set up right next to it. So I would wake up in the morning and my brother would already be working. I would just kind of uh, wash my face and I would start working and we'd kind of work uh, the rest of the day. We'd have a lunch break and then we'd work the rest of the day and then kind of go to sleep. And we, we kind of lived like that for quite a while. Um, until we decided to get a, an office and we, we moved into an office and for the first uh, while it was just the two of us alone in the office. And, and then we, we added another team member and then another and then, uh, eventually over time we, we went all in to work on, on our first game and, I guess we kind of had uh, luck, uh, I guess a mix of luck, and we, I guess we did some things correctly, but we had uh, anticipated that we could develop the game for around five months, and then we would run out of uh, funding, because we were self-funding everything, and about two or three months into development, we were able to sign the game and get a publishing deal with funding. Uh, and that's when we met our, our partner, Graffiti Games, which uh, were awesome. And and from there, I guess things really uh, took off. Uh, we we had to work quite a while because it was our first time uh, creating a game as a studio, and it was the first game for many of the team members that worked on Bluefire. And it was definitely the first uh, real game I co-directed with my brother. So it was quite a feat, but but I guess we we were able to do uh, really good things with Bluefire, and now Bluefire launched a few months ago in February, and we're currently wrapping up some porting work, uh, getting the we launched on Stadia, we're getting ready to launch on PlayStation, Xbox, we're working on some unannounced content, and I guess we have a we're really, really eager to start working on some new plans, but uh, we may get to that later on. Um, so I won't uh, tap into anything, uh, any of that now. Well, thank you, Gabriel, for tumbling into the second question so effortlessly, which is, how did you make you start making games? This is fantastic, and it's a great story, and uh, not unusual. The, the bedroom startup is a thing that exists in te- technology more than more than uh but no thank you for that it's a fantastic story the fact that you like i just want to make games on these things it's really hard i'd be fine uh but it, it but it but it is hard uh but what you've made with blue fire which we're going to delve into in the second half of the show is quite extraordinary it really is yeah it, um it is and something yeah. that I, like looking back uh something that i think about a lot in uh i guess a few months ago i saw a video uh an interview which I really, which really hit me. Something that it was uh, the guys who made uh, uh, I can't recall the name, the Age of Empires series. Uh, they were talking about when they started making the first uh, Age of Empires because they used to be a software company, but I guess they really loved uh, games and they wanted they went all in and made a game. And one of the guys said something that struck me because I could really relate with, 
and it went something like they they kind of feel they got to the point where they are right now because when they started they had no idea how games were made at all so they just kind of uh, went like whatever comes up we'll see how we tackle it and and I guess that kind of worked for them because if they knew exactly everything that would be needed to get a game a ship uh, launched and on consoles and a physical version and everything from the start, it would just be so crazy to go into that knowing exactly uh, what the steps are and everything that needs to be created in terms of company infrastructure that they don't know if they would have ever gotten into that. And yeah, I wouldn't, they wouldn't the have done it. Sorry, David, you're right. They <laughs> would not have done it. It's like, why, why would you do this? Why would anyone do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I guess it's a mix because, it, and, and I remember I, I, I kind of have a conflict on this because when I started very early on, I also remember when I wanted to make a Kickstarter campaign. And I remember at that time I used to feel like, the only thing stopping uh, me and my partner from creating a, an amazing game is that nobody trusted us and nobody wanted to give us uh, money for development. And looking back now, I think I I can't stress it more enough, but I, but I was like completely mis- mistaken in terms of uh, we didn't have any experience and we still had to learn a lot of things that you, I guess you learned uh, growing up slowly. And what I, what I mean by that is if somebody approached me today and offered me uh, to create or like a, a, a really, really big project, and, and it's like they gave me a, an IP and they wanted a, Roby to create a sequel, but it was like a huge project, uh, a scope way out of our reach, I would definitely say no. Uh, I know it's a good thing for studios to push their limits with every project, and increase their their scope, uh, their capability, and everything. But now I have a much better idea of where there's a limit to that that's healthy and when it exceeds it. And I can clearly see that when I started out, I still had so much to learn. And if we'd have done a Kickstarter campaign and we had gotten uh, development funds, we would have... Uh, wasted everything and we would probably have not even able been able to deliver a game uh at all so so i guess that what what i'm trying to say is that it is true but i guess there's kind of like a balance between going forward uh because you don't know enough and you're eventually going to get it done but listening to people so you can so they can help you uh, know if your scope is completely insane or if it's something that you're actually going to be able to pull off. Yeah. And that's something that helped us a lot because we went to so many events and got in touch with so many people in the industry that we eventually started realizing what things were possible and what things were not. Mm. Let's move on to the creative process now then, because that's where we're going now from here on in. We now have what is known as the dreaded third question. Yes. It's dreaded because it's a bit open-ended and nebulous. But I have to ask it of you because you're a creator of things. So you can answer this as part of Roby Studios or you can answer it as your personally, what would you what you take. But basically, the question is this. What are your biggest influences as creators? Um, I guess 
Well, I have my personal things, and mm-hmm. I guess the studio has uh, like a, a direction mm-hmm. because if everybody liked a lot of random stuff, I mean, everybody in the company likes uh, a lot of different things, but there are a lot of uh, shared interests which we usually even ask to people who are like potential candidates who come in for interviews. We tend to ask them how they feel about specific uh, games, movies, genres, aesthetics. Because it's a good thing if there's a shared uh, interest in in the core of the company theme. And so, for, for example, um, there's a really big interest in third-person action, third action-adventure games in the company. And it's very valuable that everybody here likes these type of games because it's uh, we, we don't really like to have uh, developers who aren't motivated and who don't like the work that they're doing. I guess it like it, it happens eventually. Sometimes I have to end up doing things that I'm not really enjoying, like working in localization implementation and some and generic uh, housekeeping stuff. But most of the time we, we really wanna have everybody in the team focused on and not focused, I mean motivated by the content that we're developing. So I guess as a studio, um, we have a lot of inspiration from, I guess, a lot of things. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and mention the the biggest influences. We have a, a, a very big influence from Nintendo games um, because we kind of feel that Nintendo games have a really big focus on the gameplay aspect and they don't go overboard with the graphical aspects of games and as a small studio i don't think there's any way in which we can compete with triple a graphics so it's uh it doesn't make any sense if we wanted to go in that direction as a studio but if we want to focus on creative innovative and good gameplay that's something that we can do um so that's a, a really really big influence Games like uh, Zelda, uh, games like Mario, which have a, an adventure, have a feel of a progression of learning to control the avatar or learning the game mechanics and getting better at them. That's a really, really big focus here. That's a laudable thing to focus on. And I, I do like the idea of uh, having a, a group thought, a group think that everyone can relate to action adventure games, which has been around for a very very long time longer than people give it i know you know this but you know they've been around for a, a very long time and yes you could go back to the original zelda but there are games even older than that that uh, that uh, it drew inspiration from but uh, and it definitely shows with blue fire that you do, do have a you, you understand the appeal of them and why they are appealing and why people continue to play play them and play through them and then try to basically see more of the world that's been developed you know, just, just the sense of discovery is a reward in itself. Uh, and that's why I play them. I mean, that's why I finished, you know, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. All 142 hours of it. <laughs> I'm not joking. Yeah. It's just like, I'm playing through Mass Effect again. Which is not quite the same because it's, you know, it's an RPG. But you know what I mean. It's, it's there's... Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely know. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, and at the same time, I guess, like, we're, we're a young company. We're, like, two and a half years old. Mm. And I guess even though we have this uh, this north in terms of both gameplay and we also have some uh, 
aesthetic uh, influences, which I can go over in, in a bit. I guess we're also evolving, and like uh, in in the future, the the same thing that would apply to uh, somebody like a, somebody in school or somebody in university. Um, there's a lot of places where we can end up, and over time, we also want to try to uh, have our own original edge, and we're also looking at how the market evolves because we don't see us as a studio which completely ignores the market and there's a lot of trends and things going we're also not a like a super hyper casual developer in which we're going to start making trendy games uh we're always we're always focusing on what's a game that uh roby would do and what's the next game roby would do because like i said we're still young and we're still creating our own identity um but we're looking at different uh, things that have more network experience. Uh, User-generated content is something that is really charming to us, and it's uh, very exciting, and we're also eager to see what type of experiences we can uh, create and we can test out that have user-generated content. And I, I, I guess I can't say too much now, no. but we... we, we <laughs> But we have something in the near future with it, which involves some user-generated content, which we want to have. We want to see how people react to that, mm-hmm. and we want to see how we can kind of evolve the experience that made us and made us grow up as players with the modern and today's uh, current market and and games. So we want to try to see how the games. We grew up playing would look like right now. Right now, not only in graphics and gameplay, but the complete user and community experience. And we kind of feel that moving forward, we're eventually going to start adding some more elements that connect players, uh, not only in the game but also outside the game. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, there's 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 been attempts and successful attempts. There's been you know Mario maker of course and then there's dreams uh and there's a few, a few others as well but um yeah best of luck with that one but it's it's it's, it's a tough it's a tall order <laughs> next question what developer you'd most admire in the industry and why oh that's uh that's a tough one <laughs> <laughs> but i guess it, it's definitely a tough one uh can be a company or a person doesn't matter if if it's a company, I definitely say uh, Nintendo. No, I understand. And that. and if it was a a developer, um, I guess this one's hard. <laughs> um, I would probably say um, Shigeru Miyamoto. Okay. Um, I'm not yep. sure if that's, spelled, if that's how it's uh, pronounced in English. Is it Shigeru Miyamoto? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, I, I would probably say him mm-hmm. uh, because, I don't know, I, it's probably one of the first uh, game developers I even learned like who was when I was mm. a kid because when, right. I, when I was a kid and I got into this, I didn't really know people. Like, I, I didn't have colleagues. I didn't know people my age or developers for different companies. and But I did get to know like a few game directors that you could see on on some interviews. I don't know, I guess one of the first guys I ever knew. And I later, uh, several years ago, 
I learned that he was uh, an industrial designer, and I'm also an industrial designer. And I read a few interviews that he had, that he that he had, and I guess with uh, my another per- perspective that I had when I was a kid, I was able to understand a lot more reading them as an I guess as an adult, and and I just kind of uh, the the way he looked at game development uh, synced very very nicely with how I view and think about things. And so I, and besides that, I also admire him for uh, the work that he's done. So yeah. I, I, I would yeah. definitely go with go with him if I had to choose one. That's, that's perfectly valid answer. And there's something that's been raised on the show before about Nintendo. And apologies, regular listeners, I'm going to say it again, but here we go. Nintendo is ultimately a toy company. You may disagree, but they are. Um, <laughs> they, they, they started out life as a, making playing cards and uh that's what they've been doing ever since in variety of forms and what they create are toys and their game design sensibilities are anchored around that concept again you may disagree but if you think about it it makes lots of sense that's why they keep on bucking the trend so to speak because they're not far as they're concerned a video game is yet another toy I know, but that's how it's... It's very simplistic, and they may disagree, but that's from what I'm looking at it. And you said you're into industrial design. Well, a lot of industrial designers work within that industry, with that field. Um, So, although it's called something else, but ultimately there's lots of crossover skills, so to speak. Um, And uh, what what do you think of that that observation? Do you think there is some merit in it? Uh, Yeah, I... I think it's correct. I definitely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can even see it in, in the types of uh, products they release, uh, whereas you, you have uh, Sony, you have Xbox, and they're just uh, flat-out uh, video games. I mean, they have their consoles, and, and, and that's it. Uh, Nintendo creates all these uh, gadgets and things like accessories. They create, uh, like, wheels and handles and... Uh, and Bows and so, like all types of crazy controllers and ways in which you can interact digitally. So I think uh, I agree with you. Um, I also think that they've uh, kind of expanded the concept of toy mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what oh, it yes. originally was, and they've also lo- learned that uh, today's uh, society has a lot of uh, community building around uh, the the products, uh, the, the toys that they make. Mm. But in the end, they are just like, they are toys. Except yeah. now they have the ability to bring people together in ways that nobody would have imagined before. And they've also uh, been accepted as okay to, to use and play with and entertain one oneself yeah. uh, by people who aren't uh, just kids. And that's something that really changed uh when I was a kid, because uh, grown-ups didn't play games when I was a kid, but now everybody plays ga- plays games. So it opens uh, such a, a, a huge uh, amount of possibilities in which they can only not entertain themselves, but also get in touch with other people, uh, get to know people, and so many possibilities, which I, I think uh, Nintendo are... Uh, kind of using i mean and you can see it with the you mentioned a while ago animal crossing and animal crossing is a game that uh is 
I guess, really different in a lot of ways because it does allow allow you to create, but there's also a lot of uh, I mean, you can get meet friends, you can visit the islands other people make, and I guess they've been growing a lot in, in that way too over the years. If if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, for me, the pinnacle of it is they made remote control cars. <laughs> This is, they've made you turn into a race. You turn your living room into a racing circuit. That's it. If you want to know what Nintendo's about? It's that. So you know you're right. It's uh, it's it's really fascinating. But um, my last question, the first half, is this, and we have to ask it because it's a video game podcast, right? So this is it. What are you playing right now? Um. I'm a, I'm actually not playing anything right now. I okay. I don't think I have for for a few months. Right. I have a huge backlog backlog of of games I want to play. You can talk but, about those. Uh, talk about those. That's fine. <laughs> what's what's your what's okay. your number one you want to jump onto? Like I need to need to deal with that. Uh, I have I, I want to play uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Right. Um, mainly because my my brother's playing it and he's nagging me to play it. So I I want to give it a try, and I also really like the the fact that it's a third person action adventure game, which mm-hmm. has a lot of focus on on movement, but uh, but with a with a kind of like a a topping of combat because the game is the game feels like visually and emotionally it feels like a combat game, but in the end it has maybe even more platforming than combat. I mean I still have to try it out. I can I can't talk about it after before playing it mm-hmm. but uh looking at it it just has so much stealth and platforming and acrobatics uh, but it feels like a uh, focus has a lot more pre- predominance and i think it's very very interesting because there's a lot of games that do combat and a lot of games do it really really good and f- competing with combat is kind of a uh, tricky nowadays but there's not a lot of games that do platforming, and if you can pull a game, pull off a game that uh, has a platforming feel, but everybody thinks that it's a combat game, it's it it's a win-win situation because the market consumes a lot consumes combat games way more than platforming games. But you're still gonna have a unique edge in terms of gameplay that people are gonna feel uh, very fresh. And uh, so I think it's a uh, it may be something that they could have pulled off really, really good. I still don't know because I have to play it. But, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to playing that one. Um, really looking forward to playing the Breath of the Wild sequel. I I guess, like everybody, I have my, my doubts about how it's going to look. I wasn't completely crazy about the uh, about Breath of the Wild. Um, I kind of felt it drifted maybe too far away from the original formula. I, I kind of felt I spend uh, so much time just walking from point A to point B, like I would see a spot way off in the distance, and I would go there, and I would get so bored going seven minutes walking and running and paragliding that I started doing like silly things, like I would close and open my paraglider in the air because I would just get bored, and eventually, uh, fiddling around, I would fall, I would die, and I would have to walk that seven, ten minutes all over again, and it was just so annoying, and it happened. I, I I feel like my time in Breath of the Wild was mostly spent walking, running, and paragliding, 
and uh, I'm probably a bit of a, an anxious player. Right. Um, I much, I'd much rather play a very fast game. Um, I understand. Like yeah, boy. Yeah, don't play Wind Waker then, because that's that's even worse <laughs> for that. Well, I, I well actually I actually really like uh, Wind Waker. Okay. Uh, it's one of my favorite Zelda games. That's I think my favorite, my my Zelda games are probably like Ocarina of Time, yeah, uh, yeah. Twilight Princess, and the Wind Waker, uh, mm. right next to Majora's Mask. But I kind of feel like, I, and I even replayed Wind Waker uh, like two or two years ago. Um, I'm not completely sure, but the sailing kind of feels like a mini game in itself. Yes, that's and, true. That is true. <laughs> and and I don't think you you end up doing it as often because you do sail from island to island, but eventually you you can quickly warp with the boat uh, very fast. And at the same time, uh, there's so much, so many dungeons and so much stuff to do in the actual islands that. I, I ended up spending way more time in the dungeons than in the in the sea. Whereas in Breath of the Wild, uh, shrines you can clear your shrine in anywhere from one to five minutes, and then you spend the 30 minutes uh, going from camp to camp, finding weapons that you already have, breaking weapons for weapons that are actually worse. I mean, I'm 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 going very negative about it because there's so much stuff that the game had going for it. Um, but I guess uh, I I guess uh, I I liked like Twilight. I think I, I liked it more. I liked the dungeons. But anyway, I, I don't want to go so much no, into no, a specific that's game. Fine. That's fine. And, and I don't I don't want everybody to hate me either. <laughs> <laughs> no, they won't be fine. No, everyone, if it was Tittle Tarot, my friend, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's uh, but I'm really I like you. I'm really excited for a new Zelda. That's nice. Uh, but uh, I think it's a little ways off yet. Um, but uh, right well let's move on then to the second half of the show where we will be delving deep into blue fire alright not actually delving into fire because that would be a bad idea but the name of the game is blue fire everyone calm down So, 
first question isn't really a question it's a request because we can't talk about blue fire until we know what it is so gabriel in your own words good luck with this what is blue fire <laughs> um well I, I would say blue fire for those of you who haven't never heard of the game and so i'm going to try to explain it uh in a very unorthodox manner so you can have a very clear vision of what it looks like um I would say it's a mix of uh, Mario's platforming in a Metroidvania kind of action-adventure world, similar to Zelda, um, Hollow Knight, and uh, Metroidvania games Well, in Metroid general. itself. There you go. Metroid itself. <laughs> yeah, just Metroid. So and... I can say it, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> obviously, with a third-person... Third uh, camera view and and dark aesthetics similar to uh, a mix between uh, Dark Souls and Hollow Knight with a difficulty in the actual platforming very different from most platformer games and very challenging so kind of like mashing up uh, the challenge in Dark Souls and Super Meat Boy with the gameplay of Mario and uh, an adventure world from Zelda. That's kind of like a... Hopefully, uh, people who don't know the game can uh, kind of uh, make a mental image of what it looks like with that description. Yeah, I mean, I we had a bit of a virtual green room beforehand, and I described the game as a dexterity-based action-adventure platform game. <laughs> Which is what it is. And it's unashamed. It's unashamed. It doesn't try to hide it. It says, oh no. No, you you gotta you yeah. gotta you gotta wise up. You gotta if you if you think this is a, you know um not an action adventure with some little sort of subtle platforming. <laughs> no. No, it's the it's anchored around it. Um and uh so my first question, design question is this. Blue Fire has a distorted camera view. It's a strange sort of wide-angle camera view that I've noticed. Everything's slightly off. The world is slightly twisted. Why? Well, that's that's a good and very specific observation. <laughs> but yeah, the, the camera has a very subtle uh, idle movement, which mm-hmm. you can't have it, you can turn off. Uh, because there's people who have a very uh, good eye for things, like yourself. <laughs> and there's some people who may not like it, so there's the option to turn it off. But in general, uh, we we wanted to create a world which felt alive, and we ended up creating a lot of uh, subtle things, which uh, most people will probably not even notice, but they they give a feeling that there's more things going on to your own presence in the world, uh, and camera movement kind of reflects like wind and the shakes and a lot of stuff going on. Um, so even where you're not moving the player, um, there's things going on, and that happens with uh, shaders, uh, effects, and uh, just a, a bunch of things. Um, and we we felt that really. Uh, even I guess one could think that that's just like eye candy 
and it goes against us saying that we focus mainly on gameplay. But at the same time, the core of gameplay is having people really emerged and really buying into the experience. Hopefully, they can even forget that they're out here in the real world. And just all these subtle things that make you feel like it's a, it's a real world you're playing in makes the experience more immersive and makes everything that you're actually doing in the game uh, feel more personal. Like if you, the more you're immersed in the game, the more meaningful each jump, each fall, and each hit that you take will mean to the player. So I guess there's a, a really there's an effort which we had to also balance between other important things, but there definitely is an effort to make an immersive world. I do actually I can actually vouch for that because I initially started playing Blue Fire with my feet up on my couch and stuff, and then within about five minutes that that you couldn't you can't play that game you can't play Blue Fire <laughs> like that you just can't you can't. You have to sit up, lean into the screen, because otherwise you will die. <laughs> and it will be entirely your fault. Entirely your fault. Um, which leads me on to my second design question, uh, which is this. Knowing where the player is in space within Blue Fire is vital. They need to know where they are in relation to everything else. Right? all the time all of the time this is vital for any third person action adventure game but for especially for blue fire it's really important what te techniques did you employ as a developer to inform the player of this like they're making sure that they know where they're going to land and where they are in relation to other things what what, did, what kind of things have you done to help with this uh this this is a really good question uh a very interesting question, and there's so many subtle things that we've done. At some point, I would have even liked to uh, put like a, a grid around the player to have people uh, know where things are, because uh, it, it it allows us to create even harder challenges. Uh, even though, of course, we were never going to put a grid around the player, but there are a lot of subtle things. I guess I'll I'll name a few uh, because I think this is a, a key point in getting a 3D platformer-focused game right. So, for example, um, of course, the player has a shadow that is cast in the floor, and the shadow changes scale based on the distance from the player to the floor, but that that's just the start of it, and it's something super simple that you see in all games. But beyond that, there's a lot of things. Um, for example, there's a, there's a vector in the game um, which is stored... And which, for those of you who don't understand, is just like the position of the player is stored internally at all times and is reflected upon all materials in the game. So when, even though you're not going to notice it, um, when you get close to a surface and you're about eight meters from the surface, there's a slight change and the surface is a bit lighter. And there's a subtle, of, of course, it's uh, mainly uh, from from a... It's a focus. It's like a small gradient between a specific distance from the player and right. uh, yeah. a, a set distance away from that. But it allows you to realize that you're getting close to an object and you're at some time going to have to uh, like 
dash or jump or grab again and it's very subtle and it's not something that nobody this one is very very subtle because of course it would look awful if everybody noticed that you're lighting the world as you move around but it gives players a bit of help in making sure we can create hard uh, challenging levels but they can know when they have to uh, pull off a dash because for example if you're falling from a really big height and you're going to another platform but the whole idea is that you can't reach reach that the platform until you dash and if you have no reference of where you are in of what height you are you'd never be able to reach it but um but it if you unconsciously detect that the platform has a very small subtle change when you approach it then automatically you're gonna something some area in your brain i guess is gonna know that you better start getting ready to press that uh, trigger button and perform a dash and reach the platform. And besides that, I think there's uh, a lot of uh, very subtle things that we've done to help uh, the experience. And something that was also very, uh, I guess it's related, but it was a surprise to us. But when we ported the game to Switch for the first time, it was incredible that some some levels that we had created were impossible. I could beat them easily on the computer, but on Switch, on handheld mode, there's no way I could uh, I could beat them, like literally impossible. And we started looking into it, and we realized that there's a lot of factors into play. Uh, some of them have to do with the actual like uh, Joy-Cons and controls for Switch, and we had to create some systems that would adapt the how the input was received if the game was running on Switch. Um, some some other things had actually to do with the fact that the screen is very small and the game was running at 30 f uh, frames per second rather than 60 at the computer. So we ended up implementing a, a, a lot of logic that would help the experience if it was either in 30 frames per second or in a small handheld screen. And for example, on 30 frames per second, the character jump is slightly higher. It's like very, very slightly higher. Uh, and it's not going to get you anywhere in terms of uh, unlocking or skipping a sequence that you, you wouldn't be able to do on PC. But that time just gives us enough time to to make it feel as if the difficulty in some levels is the exact same on both PC and on Switch. So and we we learned that testing the game on Switch and testing it on PC wasn't a, a matter of looking into the performance and technical things, but we had to kind of uh, leave that aside and focus on the feel because the only important thing at the end was the feel. And we ended up changing uh, several things. For example, some platforms that fade are a bit bigger on Switch. And if you play the game on both platforms, you probably won't notice because the feel is the same. Um, but if you play the Switch version on PC, you would feel it's a bit easier, if that makes sense. No, it makes absolute sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Go, on. Uh, no, go, go, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just finding it fascinating that you've had to, you've made to make these subtle changes on a different platform because most people think... Oh, it's the same kind of code, isn't it? You just sort of move it. Well, no. 
I mean, not for Switch anyway. I mean, you might be the case for Xbox Series X and uh, PS5 for PC and stuff. And yes, there's a lot of similarities between those those platforms now. Uh, but uh, yeah, for the Switch, it's yeah, it's a different different thing, and it's wonderful that you've actually got into that level of that depth because you had to because you've made this game the way it is, and you know the precision required to, and it's also very definite. You know, you know where you're. This the thing about Blue Fire is it hasn't got platforms covered in grease. Do you remember there was a period of time where there's loads of platformers that had, for some reason, they were banked, they were they they embraced momentum. To the point where the game was almost unplayable because you'd land on a platform and then you'd slide a bit. Like, why? Why, why am I sliding? It's like, uh, that, that, it's really momentum. No, this isn't Prince of Persia, you know. But um, although I did see a bit, I did feel a bit of Prince of Persia going on with Blue Fire. I'm not sure if you, do you have ever played Prince of Persia or do you know? Uh, I probably just. Yeah, I probably just. I, I mean, I remember playing it at a at Walmart at like right. a demo or something. Yeah. But I really didn't play it too much. I looked at the we looked at the animations once because I know it had wall run, and yeah. I kind of looked at parkour a video a bit. But honestly, it, I mean, I think it has a lot going for it. And people mm. usually say it's a good game, but I haven't played it, and it's no. not something that I'm actually uh, referring to does. the one before that, the original original one from the 80s. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 I actually I actually played that one a lot. I remember uh, oh, it was probably the fir- it was probably the first game I had. And yeah. I would play with, uh, with my brother and my father. Uh, we had a s- super old computer, yeah. and and we just yeah. played it a, a whole lot. I yeah. don't remember too much, honestly, because I was really no. young at that age. I but I, I I remember it, and I uh, we also have pictures and videos. <laughs> there's some there's some puzzles in Blue Fire that go, huh? That's very Prince of Persia like. So obviously you got into your subconscious whether you liked it or not. Like, oh well. So yeah, I was, next. I was about to say that. Yeah, next question. I want to talk about ability upgrades, of which there are many. You have to earn them, and you've got to, you know, it's, it takes quite an effort to earn them, rightly so. I mean, everything about Bluefire is you've got to earn it to, to get it. But uh, they do lessen the difficulty. In some areas, you can backtrack a little bit, but you find it less problematic because all of a sudden you've got these new abilities, very Zelda-like in that regard, where you get these new abilities and you find accessing to areas a little bit easier. Um, so how, can you talk, with, talk us through the design of those abilities, please? How have you found making them? Okay, um, that's also a good question. Uh, but I think at this point I, I knew a, a good question was coming. <laughs> but uh, but I guess yeah. They, so the the upgrades that you get in Blue Fire, I mean, there's a standard upgrades like you can get. Uh, you you end up getting. Uh, well, actually, the, there's not so many like standard standard upgrades. Uh, hmm. I mean, they are in terms of that their health, their like uh, amulets that you can equip. But in terms of how they affect the actual game, hmm. uh, I think. We ended up creating uh, some content that has uh, a really a, a lot going for it. Um, so, for example, the health upgrades, which are key upgrades in the game, because you start out with uh, four hearts. Um, I'm pretty sure now. I'm, uh, for some reason, I'm doubting if it's five, but I'm yeah, pretty it's sure five. it's four. It's four. It's four. five. Four. Oh. <laughs> it's four. No, it's four. You're right. It's four. Okay. 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 Um, but you start out with four hearts. And the game gets hard uh, early on. 
um, which is something I like because I'm kind of a tired of hearing that games are easy to learn and hard to master, and then all games are easy. So Bluefire ends up getting the, the difficulty curve uh, gets pretty high early on, and you eventually realize that getting hearts is a key aspect to the game, and hearts are lo- locked away, and you have to unlock them beating the void challenges, which are the most challenging uh, segments of the game, and they're purely platforming. So it's kind of like a con- controversial, because if you want something that's going to make the game easier, you have to beat the most challenging aspects of the game, but it's optional. And it's something that people have... We've had a great uh, reaction from people because they kind of decided... They take it upon themselves to tackle these really hard parts because they know they don't have to, but they really want to because it makes their life easier. And they end up enjoying the one of the strongest aspects of the game. And they also feel really uh, rewarded because their reward feels right. And um, they, it's really, it's a really good feeling when you decide to do it yourself, and the game is not telling you that, forcing you to do it. So that's, a, I guess that's one of the rewards that I really, really like. But probably not the upgrades, which I, I'll focus on now since it was the main topic of the question. But besides the other uh, similar upgrades to the health, we have the uh, the spirits, which are the I guess the second most biggest uh, upgrade in the game, um, and I'm saying second just because you definitely have to collect some health, otherwise mm. there's no way you're going to beat the game. True, but... true. <laughs> I can vouch for this. Go on. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, the spirits um, are very, very powerful upgrades, and they're actually not locked away uh, behind super hard challenges, but you find them through a completing quests and through exploring the world, which are also very uh, interesting and fun things to do. And their spirits are so rewarding that people just end up and going and collecting a lot of them. But we did place them in a way that throughout the game, you'll encounter enough spirits to make your life uh, easier, but not so many that you're going to feel overpowered. And there was something. This was something that we had to balance quite a lot, because if we made too many spirits available, um, the later parts of the game would be way too easy. And then we also had to balance what about people who decide to collect all the spirits and everything and then move forward. And we ended up adding some backtracking just to make sure that you couldn't uh, beat latter parts of the game with all the spirits. So eventually, if you want to have everything, you're going to have to beat hard parts and then return. And I guess there's a, a, a point where you have to... Uh, where if you're doing everything you can before moving forward in the in the main, I guess, storyline, things could potentially get easier, but at the same time, this is where this system works really great with the optional, very hard challenges because there's some later optional uh, challenging voids which are really 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 hard and if you don't have any upgrade um i mean you can't beat them technically but no it's very really very challenging 
and the normal players are going to go back to them when they have enough upgrades. So even if you collected a lot of stuff and the, some of the last areas of the games suddenly seem a bit less challenging, you're still going to have a regular challenges hidden behind these uh, voids, which are going to force you to use all your upgrades to their limit. Exactly. Which is exactly <laughs> what I wanted to tell us about. And it's just... It's utterly fascinating how you come up. It's clearly an organic process. The development of Blue Fire is very organic. That's what I'm trying to get at. And you're definitely <laughs> demonstrating that to me. Um, and you, you said it from the outset. You know, you didn't even know what you're doing. No offense to you or your team, but you're just, you know, you're initially, but now, you know, eventually you figured it out. And my word, have you figured it out? But last question. I know all good things must come to an end, but here we are. And this one might sound a bit benign and odd, but I wrestled with this last question. I could talk all sorts of things about the sound design, which is exceptional. Uh, I could talk about that. But no, this, there's something that struck me really early on and, and throughout playing most of the game that got me out of a lot of trouble. It's the dash manoeuvre. It's phenomenally powerful from the outset. It really can really get you out of trouble and all sorts of... Well, it can get you into trouble as well, granted, but nine times out of ten I found it pulling it, you know, pressing it and just basically... So I want to talk with you, was it always there? And, you know, was it always as, as useful as it, as it is in, in Blue Fire? <laughs> um, well, I I would say yes. Uh, the dash was always there uh, from, the, from the first moment when we started prototyping, and it's probably... I would say I would go as far as saying that the dash is the the key aspect to the orig, originality in the player controller for Blue Fire because there's a lot of games with dash, but the dash in Blue Fire is just so useful for so many things. And while, while you were saying that, I realized that we've never uh, actually put like an analytic in knowing how many times somebody dashes per per game run and that would be really interesting but really the dash is uh, probably used uh, as much or maybe maybe even more than the regular jump I don't think uh, more than jumps because you jump and double jump all the time but definitely the, the dash is the key aspect to what makes the Blue Fire player controller good and from the first, from when we started prototyping, just jumping and double jumping just felt kind of a uh, generic. But then we, st I, re I remember even when we started, when we added this launch, and the dash originally was more like a launch, and it just made, it created so many uh, interesting possibilities. And we, there's uh, so many 2D Metroidvania games which have some sort of dash, but there's not really a 3D game. Uh, platforming game which has a dodge uh, dash there's a few games which have a, a dive but it kind of works differently and you kind of lose control over the player and just being able to launch quickly in any direction and not like as a final jump but more like a, as a beginning or as an in-between like jumping dashing and then jumping in another direction um just felt really really good and created a lot of uh, gameplay possibilities and something like to to elaborate on that, Blue Fire.
doesn't have any momentum, but it does. Um, and and the way that would work is that you're not locked into the direction you're jumping. You have complete control over the player at all times when you're in the ground, when you're in the air, when you are uh, when you're doing everything, except when you're dashing. But the dash is one of the like the strongest things that you can do. And when you jump, when you stop moving in the air, you it almost immediately freeze. So you have a very, very precise control of the player, which allows you to maneuver and allows you to jump in one direction, dash in another, and then double jump in a third direction. And when you collect uh, upgrades throughout the game, you can even go as far as doing a jump in a direction, a dash in another direction, a double jump in a third direction, a second dash in a fourth direction, and uh, a last uh, jump, like a triple jump, which is uh, another upgrade, in another direction. And that creates so many possibilities, and the only factor that even allow, that allow, that didn't allow us to create even more interesting and harder platforming experiences as part of the main game, because it uh, I'll go I can comment on that just a second, um, was the fact that moving the camera in all of these angles quickly in 3D is uh, is very off-putting for the majority of players and yep. at some yep. point I'd, as the difficulty curve goes higher you start uh, kind of a losing interest uh, of other players so i guess we always kind of also looked at where we do the lines in terms of uh balancing the difficulty so we wouldn't uh, put off a lot of people who th- thought the game looked really good and wanted to enjoy it but couldn't beat anything or thought it was just completely impossible but uh, I'm actually looking forward to seeing uh, – uh, well, I, I won't add anything more uh, because I, no, can't, okay. I, can't, I can't say anything right no, now. No, no, no. But, uh, it's, uh, no it's, it's just an extraordinary addition that uh, I felt it was very early on because it's so crucial to the movement of the character. And you've done a fantastic job of explaining what it does and how it opens up the play arena uh it's up there with rocket league in the ability to fly in that game so um well blue fire is developed by roby studios by the way where's the name come from by the way um i honestly at this point i i don't i think it just kind of sounded cool good at one point and <laughs> right. it it because i okay i remember now the when when we first created uh, one of the first prototypes that we did, we had this uh, blue environment and forest where everything was frozen, and we kind of like envisioned a world where everything was completely frozen, and there there was this energy that had to be restored, and we just kind of settled on blue fire, and we really liked it. But as we as we continue to progress on the game, that was completely scrapped. But we kept the name and we kept a part of the – we kind of adapted the way it worked in the story. And I guess like that's one of the last things that I can add in is that the the way the lore evolved was just uh, very interesting to me personally because I kind of feel like we did reverse archaeology. Yes, true. In (laughs) – 
<laughs> in in the way that when we started, we we would we said, okay, this is uh, like the backstory, this is the story, and this is how everything works. But as we got into it and and we were developing, we were real we were realizing we were putting things in the game, and we said this doesn't work, this doesn't either, this actually works better, and we started discovering how the story really uh, shaped and how things had really happened. And then we kind of uh, create new theories of how things actually went down. And as we kept on developing, we would realize which theories were correct and which weren't. And then we will elaborate new theories. And I kind of felt that kind of similar to what archaeology archaeologists do, in which they, I guess they kind of, uh, they believe that uh, the people created uh, pyramids for this and this reason, and then as the years go by, they kind of just that, okay, they were right about this, but wrong about this, so it changes. It just kind of felt very similar, and it was very fun because we discovered the story of the game as we went along, rather than starting from a script on day one. Yeah. Nice. It's like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, like the reverse. Yes. That, that, that fits very well. So yes, it's uh, Blue Fire is published by Graffiti Games as well, um, and it's out now on Nintendo Switch. We've said that. Now, could you tell us what the other platforms are? Uh, sure. So it's also available on Stadia, and mm. it's coming to PlayStation and Xbox very very soon. And it's also available on uh, physical version for Switch, and. I guess it's going to be available for the on physical version for other platforms uh, mm-hmm. also soon. Is it is it is a window a PC version as well? I think. Oh uh... uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's on Steam. On, it's on Steam. Windows it's actually, PC. It's on Steam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, it's it's not on on Mac or or Linux yet. No, um, no. We honestly don't don't have any confirmed. Uh, thing if if it's going to be on those platforms at this I point. Understand. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. This means I can't play on my laptop. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Gabriel, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Um, okay, uh, thank you. Honestly, it was a pressure. Very, very, very fun. Very nice. Yeah, thank you. I hope you had had fun. I know I did. Listening to you tell all sorts of stories <laughs> and wonderful stuff. It's been really entertaining. And you're more than welcome to come back to tell us about your next thing. Which sounds very exciting. You're bursting to tell, but you can't. And I don't know how frustrating that must be. <laughs> but uh, no, Gabriel, thank you very, very much. Okay, well, thank you. It was a pleasure, really. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, canorince.com. <laughs>